Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the In Search for More podcast. I'm here with uh, Joey Cohen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. The founder and CEO of 40 Pillars. Uh, before we go into what you do and why we're here, I want to talk about how we met. Uh, we hosted a conversation the In Search of More podcast hosted a conversation called The Truth About Ketamine. It was a live webinar, which we eventually posted on podcast form. And about two or so months later, I was introduced to you by Devorah Common, who was one of the panelists on that um, podcast. And she had told me there was this gentleman named Joey Cohen. Well, why don't you pick it up from here? Tell us what happened. So I was listening while you were live with Dr. Radowitz Common, I actually called Nishama. I'm like, wow, this sounds good. I need this for healing purposes. So I called him and scheduled an appointment. And I was in there within two or three weeks. What spoke to you on the podcast that said, I need this? Um, I don't remember the exact conversations from the podcast, but I do remember conversations around trauma and uh, just stuff being trapped in our body. And how that impacts our behaviors and how ketamine has helped people with PTSD, for example. It's something that I discovered through working with a therapist, a trauma therapist. That's something that I do have from my childhood. Awesome. So one of the things we were talking about uh, before we went live here was what you feel is a stigma around psychedelics. Yes. Speak on that. Yeah, the reason why I'm doing this interview with you and I did a documentary a few months ago on psychedelics is because I do feel there is a stigma around psychedelics, especially in certain communities. Um, and I wanted to destigmatize that. I want to be part of a group that is destigmatizing psychedelics because once there's not a stigma around it, more people are going to uh, try it out. And once you try it out, there's going to be more opportunities for healing. Were you part of the stigma at some point? I, I would say, yeah, I was part of the stigma. Well, before you, <laughs> before, before you began working with psychedelics, what was your feeling about it? Do you remember? Because I never did drugs before, never got involved with drugs or alcohol or smoking growing up. I just thought people who did psychedelics were more, you know, they're doing it for party reasons. That was your association with it? And yeah. The, and that's what you believe is still the stigma today? Yes, Including ketamine? I guess, yeah. Because when I've mentioned, when I've shared my documentary with people, a lot of people called me and they said, yeah, I used to do ketamine in college. I used to snort it. Or I used to do it, I used to take it in different ways, but I I did it with a doctor, with a nurse, in a professional setting, IV drop, with intentions for healing. So what do you think the difference is between a healing experience and a party experience, the way you see it today? What's the difference? The difference is... Not the difference in the outcome, the difference in um, like the ingredients of the soup itself, like leading into the experience. What's the difference between... The intentions? Say ketamine being used as a party drug and ketamine being used as a healing medicine. I'm sorry, I'm not clear on your question. You had a healing experience with ketamine? 100%. Okay. Someone else used ketamine in a party setting? Yes, they most likely did not have a healing experience. No, they didn't. They okay, had a bad why experience. Not? Why not? What's the difference oh, between the two? One is the setting. The setting is very important. Number two, the intention. 
super important. My intention was to deal with past trauma to overcome struggles that I dealt with in the past. And number three, I don't know what doses they were taking. I don't know the quality of what they were taking. They were certainly self-administered or not. 100%. Doctor-administered, like in your case. Or with the... Right. Okay, so you're using a lot of words like trauma and synonyms of that. Bring us into your story a little bit. What trauma are we talking about? What's the what what happened in your life and what was going on that you said I needed to I needed something more than I was getting? If I can go back to two thousand, I mean maybe a year and a half ago, I did a men's retreat, men's workshop, where it was focused on dealing with past trauma. And I had a breakthrough experience. I started crying at the retreat. I was in a circle surrounded by a group of men. I was the guy in the middle. They're asking me to share my story. Right. From the beginning. And the leader asked everyone else to release sighs that feels natural for them that's connected to my story in terms of like compassionate, empathetic type size. Give you nonverbal feedback. Nonverbal feedback. Like, so I actually started crying, getting emotional when I was sharing my story. From the way they were reacting to it. From the way they were reacting to it. Got it. And then the facilitator at some point said, what if that was your daughter? Asking you that question. What if it was your daughter that went through your experience? Can you take us into that? What was the experience? What are, we, what are we talking about? So I couldn't, I didn't really have compassion for myself. I couldn't be empathetic to myself from my own experiences. When I was in therapy, the therapist said, you have a pretty extraordinary background, crazy background. The way it started was in a nutshell, I was born in Iran during the revolution. My father was killed during the revolution. My mom and I escaped we ended up in the South, in the United States. Any siblings with you or your mom and you? No. No siblings from my biological father. Got it. She married someone from... How old are you at this time when you escaped? A two. Okay. Maybe one. She married someone who is from the South to help us get out. He adopted me. From the South of? Like Mississippi. Oh, from the South of the United States. Okay. Yeah. I thought we are still in Iran. Okay. Yeah, sorry. It was very normal... For me, it was a very normal childhood. In what sense? We moved around every year, every six months. I was beaten every day with the paddle, with the switch. By? By my stepdad, um, people in the school, even verbal, a lot of verbal abuse. People in my family, there was, there was definitely physical abuse. And at a certain point, skipping forward, we lived in California, uh, my brother, Michael, half-brother, who came from this Mississippi. second marriage. Mississippi, Mississippi marriage. Dad. Mississippi yeah. dad. <laughs> so it was me, my mom. My mom's from Iran. You know, she had a traumatic departure. She had her own... A traumatic departure from Iran. From Iran. And her own stuff that she never healed from or processed. And back then, therapy wasn't a thing. And what we're talking about in this meeting wasn't a thing. So she never, even to this day, she thinks that, you know, healing and psychology is all BS. So um, she sent me away 
we lived in California to live with another family because she couldn't take care of me in, the, in our little studio apartment. It was well-intentioned, but I was sent away at a young age, like maybe 10 years old. Wow. Did you send your other siblings away? Or? Just me. Just you. So the siblings she had with Mississippi dad stayed home? It was only one sibling. Yeah. He stayed with he her. He stayed home. Michael. Yeah. I ended up in Savannah, Georgia with this family. Decent family. Um, the Andersons. And small town outside of Savannah, Georgia. And I remember, I guess I was maybe more around 11 years old. And I wet the bed every night. And I was pulling my hair. And I didn't realize, in, with, in hindsight, I realized I probably had <laughs> a lot of anxiety. Yeah, probably. And I was dealing with a lot of stuff. But on the surface, you know, I was going to school like a regular kid. Anyway, I ended up there for a year. Got into a lot of trouble. My mom got some advice that I should probably go to military school. Got it. When you say trouble? Fights. Um, get involved with the wrong guys. I went to some tough public schools. One of the schools that I went to in the South, Savannah, Georgia. Kids brought guns and knives. And um, I literally had to fight for my life. So my mom sent me to military school. And in military school, it was just, it was tough. I was attacked by skinheads. I got jumped into a gang. They knew you were Jewish? No, it wasn't because I was Jewish. I didn't identify as a Jew. Understood. I was actually raised Christian. Interesting. So I was baptized at five years old. I was told, I didn't really have an identity. I was told that this guy was my father. Mississippi dad. Mississippi, Mississippi dad. I discovered later at six, seven years old, eight years old, he wasn't my father. Um, and we looked much different. <laughs> um, but I was raised Christian, wore a cross around my neck. And so that wasn't a thing. But because I was from Iran, I was really dark. My mom's super dark. I got picked on. And um, they're very ignorant, especially 20, 30 years ago in the South. So... I had some trouble with different groups of people there. It was a tough situation. There was attacks in the school, stabbings, riots. So I got into a lot of trouble. And and your mom did what? I said, so I can't be here anymore. Military. Yeah. I mean, she said, I can't come back home. So I went to another military school and another and ended up dropping out. The last grade I finished was 11th grade. Ended up homeless. For six months, uh, living in the back of a truck and taking showers on the beach. As a teenager? 16 years, 17. I was hanging around with the wrong guys. And eventually, I said, you know what? This is going to lead me to jail or death. So I always had this dream to go to California. And I took a Greyhound bus to California. And I started fresh there. And my mom was still in L.A., from when we were younger. Um, so I thought it was a good reason to go to Cali. Got a job there. And um, eventually, fast forward a little bit, saved up enough money to get a little car. Some guys asked me to get them a ride somewhere. I did. They ended up um, robbing someone. 
think a drug dealer. I didn't see them again after that. Three or four months later, I don't remember how many months later, they were caught. They did a lot of other crime since then. So they tied me, these guys tied me to everything else to get a, a deal. And um, I kept my mouth shut because that's what I was taught growing up. Right. And I spent seven months in county jail, L.A., which was <laughs> living hell. Is crazy. Seven months in county jail? Yeah. Mainstream county jail. It was tough. How old were you then? Just turned 18. So you're 18, spent seven months in county jail? Yeah. My lawyer um, was Jewish. He knew my background, my past. And he spoke to me about this place, a rehab called Beit Shuva. Where is that? In L.A. So we, because it was the first time I, I was involved When alone. you say he knew your background, he, understand, My he understood background. that you were an Iranian Jew. Yes. So they worked out some deal with the courts where I was released to Beit Teshuva for a year. Which is a Jewish rehab. Which was a Jewish rehab. And that was the best House thing that happened to me. I'm sorry? House of Repentance, House yes. House of Repentance, yeah. House of Return. No. House of Return. So I was involved with the 12-step program there. Even though I didn't, I wasn't addicted to anything. I didn't have an addiction. Right. I wasn't recovering from any substance but um it was great people there and that's where i turned my life around things really started changing so that was a turning point in your life yes eventually you go to school you become a lawyer graduate law school went to college got my gd because i dropped out impressive to go from uh, homelessness at 16 years old to graduating law school yeah thank you and then from there you go into hr consulting Assisting companies, leaders. My, my first job out of law school was working for a guy named John Goldman doing business consulting, business coaching. So I kind of have been on that path of business coaching, performance coaching, some HR consulting. For years now? Yeah. And I've worked with Fortune 500 companies, pro athletes, Navy SEALs. Assisting executives, business coaches to improve their own performance. Their personal lives, their professional life. Awesome. I believe it's all. So the people aspect of business. Yes. Right. Making that, making that better for companies. Yes. That's your primary vocation. That's what 40 Pillars does today. Coaching and consulting, yes. So one of the things that fascinated me about your story is that you've been on the, let's call it personal development path for almost 20 years. Since 2005, yeah. Almost 20 years. <laughs> yeah. I got introduced to Tony Robbins in 2005. So that was the first. Unleash the Power Within? Just one of his CDs. Oh, okay. I, I just, yeah, just graduated college and someone gave me all of his CDs. Awesome. And that's where it started. So that started the personal development path? Yes. But then something happened at this um, retreat you spoke about earlier that, shifted your perspective. It's not just about performance. It's not just about developing ourselves. There's something more that, um, that there's something more that's taking place inside of us that needs to be. 100%. So the therapist that I was working with before the retreat was telling me from an intellectual view that I had a lot to deal with. I had a lot of trauma that I need to deal with because I noticed that Sometimes I would get triggered and my response emotionally was disproportionate. And I wasn't proud of that and I wanted to work on it. 
but it wasn't a somatic type healing. It wasn't a body type healing. It was just very intellectual. It wasn't going to my heart. Right. So I want to focus on that for a second. So your your therapist is hearing your story, right? Yeah. And obviously, anyone looking at it from the outside, a child born into a revolution, having to run away, dad dies, um, clearly has a, a stepfather who's not very receptive, on his own at 10 years old, homeless at 16, around gangs, violence, and everything else, would understand that this child had a lot of trauma. My brother died when I was 18. He was murdered. There's a lot of other things. I'm just right. giving you 10% of the story. Right. You said enough of the story to get a sense, <laughs> right? That right. anyone hears this story, says, hey, this child's had a lot of trauma. There's probably something. Right. Wrong. I'm like, no, I didn't. I didn't have any trauma. <laughs> really? So, so I was in denial. That, <laughs> but how could you be with that, with that story? What was going? You're not in denial anymore. Right? I'm not in denial anymore. No. So what do you think was going through your head before that? And you're, you're not talking about someone who's oblivious to these concepts. You're on the performance path, personal development. You're going to Tony Robbins seminars, but something about you says my life was normal enough. I didn't want to be seen as a victim. I did not want to see myself as a victim. That's why. And the regular personal growth path, it's a lot of focus on that. Seeing yourself as a victor, not a victim. And You're changing saying your the, story. The performance. Right. So I can see how that viewpoint can really help someone get through your experiences and then in a very short time turn your life around the way you did because I don't want to see myself as a victim and not a victor. I, want, I don't want to see myself as a victim. I want to, I'm moving forward with my life. I'm a victim of no one or nothing. But now you don't see yourself as a victim or do you? No, I don't. So how did you get through that I'm very blessed. Dilemma? Not a victim. Um, so the, the traditional personal growth path, like Tony Robbins and Jim Rohn and all the, the traditional names you know of, it can only take you so far. Another therapist that I worked with knew of this men's retreat. He referred me to it. And I think we spoke about it earlier and that's where I had a, like a really amazing experience. We did some breath work there. Um, some carpet therapy. It was a great experience. Can you speak about carpet therapy a little bit? Can't speak too much about it because I don't know enough about it, but the, from my limited understanding, it's when someone plays like the role of your, I guess, the person who attacked you or the antagonist you, in the story. The antagonist. They play that role and you're already in this mindset of doing breath work and doing other things that you're in a very vulnerable emotional place that they play that role. Right. That breaks you out of the traditional thinking that you're in, the regular patterns of, I'm not a victim, so I'm not going to go there. Now we're in an emotional, vulnerable state. And then the truth that's sitting inside you can come out. Yeah. And what you found was the body stores a lot. The body stores <laughs> a lot. There's a big release, like the dam was broke. Right. That, that was an aha moment for me in my own healing where for a while we think everything is in the mind and that, oh, it's a memory and then I have to be okay with it and I can tell myself it's fine. I can change my perspective on the situation, find the silver lining and everything will be okay. And then eventually um, we realize that this isn't about that. This is a, a flower that didn't get the right nutrients, didn't right. get the right water. Right. And stored inside its very cells is the dysfunction. And our mind can think whatever it wants. 
it's not going to change the fact that inside of us we didn't have the right the right nutrients. So we got to go in there and rip out the the infected cells, the infected the infection. What what's there? Well said. So you found that as well through this um, through this retreat. So then you have this aha moment. Okay, I can think I'm not a victim. I can think whatever I want, but there's a reality. There's some stuff. There's a reality. Right. <laughs> there's some stuff stuck inside me that I need to get out. Right. After that experience, did you feel like you released all of it or you feel or you felt like you had touched the tip of the iceberg? Oh, just tip of the iceberg. So where did you go from there? Someone spoke to me about psychedelics and the benefits of it. It was the first time I was really introduced to it. In a in a proper way, because I've heard of I had a I was part of the group that there's a stigma around it. Correct. I did some research. And I saw tons and tons of studies. I mean, it's endless studies on the benefits of psychedelics for veterans with PTSD and trauma. And I'm like, I, I finally acknowledge I'm a tra- trauma survivor, whatever you want to call me. I'm not sure what the label is, but there's more work to do. And I was desperate for more. And I'm a seeker. And I'm like, I'm not actual. I cannot actualize my potential right now. I'm stuck. I got to do more. The retreat allows you to understand that there's a wealth of trauma stored inside you. Once, once you can acknowledge those experiences and the reality of that that's living inside you, you say, okay, let me try psychedelics. Someone I trusted is telling me about this. Let me see where it takes me. You start doing the research and... Um, Next thing you know, I'm doing something called 5-MEO. The, uh, it's a psychedelic. The toad. The toad. The famous toad. And I videoed myself doing it. And uh, it was like a 20-minute, 15-minute journey. And I was crying for half of it. My eyes were closed. I was pretty much unconscious. Mike Tyson talks about his... Mike um, Tyson. I saw the Mike Tyson and Tony Robbins video. You had seen this before you I, did it. Yeah, I did the As research. part of your research. It's part of my research. You had seen what they, uh, yes. they were talking and about. And I was nervous. For sure. I was very nervous. When I got... When I was in the moment... I was, there was so much fear that I didn't even let myself fully release. Even under the 5-MEO? Even under that. You still, had the, you still had the fear? I still had the fear. But it released 10 minutes of crying. It released 10 minutes of crying. That was like a thousand hours of therapy. <laughs> For sure. Question. So a week before this, you have the experience at the retreat. Right. The, the men's weekend. Right where you also release a lot. Yes. The carpet therapy and everything yes. else. Crying as well? Yes. Right, not something you're... Not something I'm used to. Not something you're trained. I don't... I always projected this tough guy type. I'm Growing the, up. I'm not the victim. I'm not the victim. So, okay, so... Do you recall going back now the difference between the carpet therapy... And the psychedelic therapy, the 5-MEO, they both obviously were very healing. Um, the carpet therapy you mentioned was preceded by breath work, which many say have a very similar effect to psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And my question is, for myself and for those listening, what was the, what was the difference between those two? What I'm trying to um, understand from you is, what did psychedelics allow you to heal and to access that... Even this very powerful experience you had with breathwork and carpet therapy at an entire weekend, 
what did that allow you to access that the weekend didn't? What did the psychedelics allow you to access that the weekend? Good question. Um, you know, one of the things that they say a lot about psychedelics is total ego dissolution. There's no ego involved. And there is stuff, when I did breath work, holotropic breath work, I went in there with certain intentions. There's certain things I feel like, okay, I released some pain. I feel some energy shifting throughout my body. It was great. Oh, ten, times, is- 10 times better than what I experienced without doing it. But the psychedelics took me to a whole different path. It's, it's, it's healing parts of me that I don't even know are there, that I forgot about. I mean, there are similarities with- With breath work. With breath work, for sure. But it's way more intense. It's, right, uh, right. It's but understand fast. that for someone who um, has questions around psychedelics or the stigma or the legali- legality of it or right. the, 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 the risks, health factors, everything else associated with it. And they do come with all of those things. What, um, and breathwork doesn't really. Right. I was told the worst that can happen from breathwork is you might faint, but when you faint, you'll start breathing again. Right. That's, that's the worst. And it's never happened to me. I've done uh, right. many breathwork sessions. I've never, I've never fainted. Same here. Never had a problem. Right. So if, if you're talking about destigmatizing psychedelics, and I want to understand what it did for you that even breathwork couldn't do. You're saying it was more of the same, more powerful? It was this particular psychedelic, because they're all different. The 5-MEO, it was like a stealth bomber. It's just a very quick path to healing, to releasing emotions. It was a 15-minute journey. Understood. But even during that, you still recognized it was more. Oh yeah, and half. And I just want to say real quick: half the journey was me releasing emotions. The other half was a state of just oneness, and just for, I went through a stage of forgiving everyone who's done harm to me, and just loving everyone. You blew away past victimhood. Oh yeah, but blew through. Now let go of anyone, any. Chains. I know this may be a hard question to answer because a lot of people uh, say that psychedelic experiences have no proper words to articulate them. But how would you describe, if you could, if not, just let the, let the question go, how would you describe the benefits of an ego dissolution state or the benefits of, I guess it's the same thing as a feeling of oneness, right? The ego is what separates us. A feeling of oneness is that state of ego dissolution. How would you describe the benefits as it relates to healing. As it relates to healing. I have a lot of examples, but how's it, how's it, and the way it relates to healing. You know, maybe don't add that to the question. How would you describe the benefits of that ego dissolution state of Well, for myself, I was able to just have a lot of self-compassion for myself. I've never, before doing psychedelics in the men's workshop, I never had compassion for myself. I could have empathy for someone else, but not for myself. And as I had more compassion, empathy for myself, I was able to give more to others. And the same thing with, I'm sure we'll get into it, with the ketamine journeys. So let's get into it. Let's get into it. <laughs> so I had five journeys at Nishama, a great place, uh, worked with Dr. Radowitz. Right, and how we met, I'm not sure if we mentioned earlier, is that you agreed to be filmed and in a documentary on yes on ketamine and that's that was, right that was shared with me and i was impressed i said hey this guy's willing to put one of those 
experiences on camera is a different is a different level. Right. <laughs> it's really putting yourself out there. Yeah. Uh and Ashama in Manhattan. It's a great place. Um the team's great. And it was a healing experience. I, I had a lot of turbulence on the journeys. There there were people that would come in and out of the room to check on me. So most of the time you're alone and then they're I'm alone listening to a playlist. I have a blindfold on in this reclining chair. And um, it's like a 45-minute journey. And you did that And you're kind of unconscious. You're aware enough that if you had to go get up and go to the restroom, you could press a, a red button. and right. Someone will come walk you out. But most of the time, you're not even aware. You're, you feel like you're in that, in these different... Dimensions. Dimensions. And the therapeutic benefits of being in these different dimensions? It was also a release. There was a lot of turbulence. It was very tough. But I did release some emotions. There was, they told me that I did cry. Right. I I think it's one of the um, misconceptions around breathwork and psychedelic therapy is that some people think it's um, the easy way out. But condensing a thousand hours of therapy into forty-five minutes or fifteen minutes—it's uh, not easy. <laughs> it's um, no, it's a lot in a short period of time. My ego was so strong, and the different parts of me, protectors of me, were so strong that they weren't letting anyone in. So it was all just intellectual. So I wasn't really able to make progress with traditional therapy. I think traditional therapy is great when you supplement it with psychedelics once you're already open. Is, is it fair to say that you weren't able to make progress when you went as a teenager from uh, being in prison to becoming an attorney to becoming a successful coach? And there was a lot of progress made through therapy and through the 12-step program that you mentioned, Beit Teshuva. Yeah, I can say that now. Right. Because I'm on something. this journey. But if you ask me, a year ago, I would not accept that, that compliment. What would you I wouldn't receive it. You wouldn't receive it? No. I would say it's not enough. It's, I didn't do anything yet. The logical recognition that most of the people who have your life experiences are no longer living or are in prison, that, that didn't register. It registered, but it was in the mind. It wasn't connecting to the heart. The whole life experience was in the mind. Yeah. This is... Um, I learned this in the 12 steps is that you know, I was numb. I was so numb coming into... That's it, numb. Go ahead. <laughs> I was so numb coming yeah. into therapy, into 12 steps. There are still parts of me that are, that are numb, right? There's, there was a, a full 360-degree numbness of me, and I'm still finding the, the parts that are still frozen. There's, there's numb, and there's a state beyond numb, because numb is a feeling. You can feel numb. And then there's a state beneath numb where you stop feeling numb. You don't even know there's this idea of numb. I was there. And through you know, early years of therapy and EMDR and 12-step programs and starting to share my story, which is something I want to talk about with you, within those 12-step programs and having a room full of people I can, I can talk to, some of those feelings started coming out. And what I recognized is the feelings that I had frozen at a young age were clogging the pipes for all the feelings. That's right. There were no good feelings or no bad feelings. You know, one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is because 
one of the many reasons is that you're on the early stages of sharing um, your story. Right. You had you did one podcast on Common Denominator right. a few months ago. Right. With Moshe Popak, which I had seen. And because it's early on in the process, you're very familiar with the lies we tell ourselves to avoid doing some of this work. And I, I thought it would be so helpful for people to hear someone who just a few months ago was on the other side of this and now is on this side saying, hey, I'm sharing my story. I'm talking about these things. I'm recognizing the the, the numbness that existed, the feelings that I was no longer feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's something that took me a while to recognize for myself is that I'd clogged the pipe so much with those feelings under the guise of, which you remind me of now, I don't want to be a victim. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a victim, so I'm not going to feel the negative feelings that I didn't have the capacity to feel as a child. And what it's doing is forcing me to live um, in a state of purely intellectual. Right. So I can tell you something like, dude, you're a hero, you've been through something that most people can't, and you're telling me a year ago that wouldn't have landed, that would be, okay, logically it makes sense, but it's not seeping into to who I am. How is this stuff, this work you've done, especially in the last year or so, changed your coaching practice and um, who you're able to be for your clients? Well, this work, you know, a- after doing the, the ketamine journeys, I started working with different therapists uh, Devorah Kamen, which she's great. I see how she works with me. And we talk about, you know, some IFS stuff, different parts of ourself. IFS, internal family systems. Internal family systems, which I've studied a little bit. So how it helps me in my own practice is that I feel like I'm able to have more compassion, more empathy for my clients and hold more space for them. And I'm trauma-informed. I, I realize that they may not be taken certain actions because there's a certain healing that needs to happen that they're not even aware of. And before you were missing that completely. Was it hustle culture for you? Was that what you were influenced by? Explain, elaborate. So hustle culture, is you know, what are things I need to do to perform, you know, at a higher level and do more and be more and, you know, more, 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 which is great because it's a hell of a lot better than being unproductive. But without... If we're stuck in trauma and we're just in that hustle yeah. culture, yeah, we're, sure, we're living ten uh, percent right. of our life, right, neck up. So really, now it's I'm doing a lot of work with my clients where I'm. It's more of a holistic approach, and I believe that you know what happens in your personal life is going to impact your professional life, and they're inseparable. So I'm able to connect the dots. If I see signs of like past trauma, I'll share my experiences and just uncover, shed some light on that blind spot. And then maybe I'll refer them to a therapist to do deeper work. Understood. Right. So now you're sharing that part of, right. And that way sharing the part of your experience where there were blocks within you that were holding you back from living your best life and saying, Hey, that's, that's going to be the same for you. Let me help you with that. Yes. And many clients opened up to me after me sharing my ketamine documentary, they opened up to me much more. They they were much more vulnerable with me, which deepened our relationship together. Oh, that's correct. Meaning once they saw you real, they weren't putting you on a pedestal. They said, hey, here's a guy doing the work. 
right. they can share with you as well. And I'm so, I don't know if we're going to get into this, but there's so much. We'll get into wherever you go. Fear. There is a lot of fear, if it's okay to yeah, pivot. Yeah. There's a lot of fear with sharing the documentary. I had second thoughts. At first, I'm like, hell yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I was pumped up. I'm like, I want to destigmatize psychedelics. There needs, there's so much healing that needs to happen in our community and other communities. Our community meaning? Jewish community, but also other communities. Today, you're I, part of which community? Within the Jewish communities. Just. You live where? I live in Long Island. Yeah. Five towns area? Yeah. Got it. Understood. So within that community, you feel that there's healing that's I, I, needed or in the broader Jewish community? I would say broader Jewish. Jewish community. Okay. I've, I've had a lot of... Do you feel like there's an added stigma around psychedelics within the Jewish community? Hell yeah. <laughs> Attributable to what? I don't know. I didn't grow up in the system, so it's, you would probably have a lot more to say about this than me. I mean, I, I started getting more involved in the Jewish community back in 2006. Right. Before that, I wasn't really involved. So it was a slow process. So I don't really have a comment. Yeah, um, there's, there's certainly a stigma. Well, first of all, the stigma is certainly relaxing. Obviously, there's going to be questions, just like you had, just like I had. We've all been influenced by the war on drugs, quote unquote. Right. And how these are bad for you. They're dangerous. Um, it wasn't so long ago that uh, Timothy Leary was called the most dangerous man in America for believing that psychedelics should be uh, you know, part of the culture. And as a result, a lot of people within the religious community take what's there, that, that messaging that's already attached to it, and add a layer of religious question marks around it. Right. Is it okay from a religious perspective? However, what I'm finding is that within Judaism, there's such a strong value for life. It's embedded in everything. Everything can be violated for, almost everything can be violated in the name of Jewish life. Mm -hmm. You know, things like the Sabbath. If someone is sick, you don't question it. It would actually be a violation of the Sabbath if right. you weren't willing to drive someone to the hospital. Right. And as a result, as more people understand, and Jewish life is not just life or death. Jewish life is quality of life as well in terms of right someone who's depressed one rabbi told me if someone is depressed there's a form of death there sure poverty extreme poverty is considered sure. a form of death mm -hmm. right there's a recognition that these problems are not just first of all it often does rise to the level of actual death between overdose sure. and suicide and things sure. like that mm -hmm. but even on a lesser level things like depression and anxiety or language that i've used a lot of is People who are sexually abused, often their childhood was robbed from them. Mm -hmm. In your story, your childhood was, was robbed from you. Mm -hmm. Or there was something inside you that died mm -hmm. during your childhood, more accurately. So using this, this language around it, I think there's an appreciation as the medical community catches up uh, to some of what you're talking about within psychedelics. Right? You're on the healing path for 15, 16 years, going to every seminar you can think of in therapy, and all of a sudden, a few substances, 15 or 20 minutes, completely reorient your life and make you realize what's inside you and what's possible and experience a, a oneness and an ego dis dissolution and all those things yeah. and how transformational that can be, the self-compassion and accessing things that you didn't even know existed. When 
the medical community is talking about this and informed rabbinical figures are hearing about this and understanding that, hey, this is recommended. Say ketamine, for example. There are people who've treatment-resistant depression who have been told that ketamine can help and a doctor is saying that. So what I found is while there's certainly stigma and there's certainly tons of questions, I'm not discounting that within the religious community, I'm also seeing um, massive leaps within it to say, to, because of the fact that Judaism is so pro-life and so pro-quality of life in terms right. of, I don't mean it the material quality of life, so pro the fact that a lesser quality of life is a form of death. Sure. And then saying, how can we improve that? I've seen it already moving pretty quickly and expect it to move much more quicker. And really all someone needs, in my opinion, is the experience of it. So seeing someone who's been stuck, not meaning not the personal experience themselves, but seeing someone who's been stuck in a repeated pattern for many years and then being able to free themselves from that pattern, whether it's drug addiction or you know, depression or anxiety or the need for rehabs or all of those things, and suddenly it changes with psychedelic treatments, experiencing that, will put most people who are honest towards the side of, hey, there is, there is, there is a place for this. And you've spoken um, accurately and correctly towards the need for set and setting. It's not the same when we take ketamine at a festival or take MDMA as a, festi- at a festival versus when we do sessions with a therapist, prepare, there's a set, there's a setting, there's an intention, there's someone you're integrating with, there's a dosage that's recommended right there's, there's a plan that's set forth versus using it in other in other ways i hope i did not give off the impression that taking psychedelics is a silver bullet it's like a magic pill it somewhat is like a magic pill but there still has to be integration right and it doesn't I'm, see right it doesn't seem to be that you're saying that because if i'm understanding correctly you're still on the I'm, path. I'm working with a therapist now right yes I'm still on the path, creating self-awareness for myself. It's something I really teach a lot, which is emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Being curious about my beliefs, my thoughts, my actions, integration, journaling, working with a therapist. So it's, I'm but, doing a lot of work outside of the psychedelic therapy. For sure. And it sounds like just the opposite because prior to the breathwork session at this retreat, you didn't think you had trauma. So right. the breathwork and the 5-MEO pointed you to the fact that there's more to work on. Right. So it didn't tell you, hey, take this, everything is perfect. It right. said, there's some stuff that's not Good perfect. Point. Now get to work. Good. Good point. Thanks. I'm glad I didn't give off that impression. So I didn't get that impression. Okay. I'm not Good. sure if, um, if certain listeners did as well. I want to um, focus on one more thing before we wrap up. Sure. So you had mentioned wanting to destigmatize psychedelics, and that's one of your motivations for wanting to speak. And that wasn't actually one of the reasons um, that we had discussed before. It's kind of where the conversation went. And, uh, and that's great. Everything, everything happens the way it's meant to. What, I'm, what I want to focus on is telling your story specifically, the details of your story. Because when you share it, it's clear that it's still difficult for you, aspects of it. You, you've, gotten emotion, emotion, you've gotten emotional several times in this conversation itself. So it's a risk that you're taking 
to share these aspects of your story? What's compelling you to do that? It's a big risk. I mean, from my limited view, I don't think it's going to be helpful for me professionally sharing this story, but I feel like... Which aspect of the story? Just dealing with psychedelics, number one. Past. My past, I guess, we can, people can get past that. That was over 20 years ago, 25 years ago, going to jail. But Have doing you lost psych- clients because of the ketamine? Uh- no. No one's ever come out and said that. I think I've only gotten positive feedback. But I think because I do a lot of corporate training and development on management topics, it could raise some eyebrows. It, oh, they, might, they might think twice. Um, but with my one-on-one clients, they're like, okay, that's cool. Um, there, I think there's a certain amount of trust. It, it builds trust, but at the same time in my community. So I did say professionally, but also social circles, which I'm okay with, but there is a risk socially because my neighbors are probably not doing psychedelics. They're probably not into this work that I'm into. Well, I thought my neighbors were not watching porn until I started talking about the fact that I okay. had a porn addiction. That's true. Yeah. Well so we'll said. find out what your neighbors are doing pretty soon. Well, well said. But I'm not having conversations in my community about meaningful, real, authentic topics like this. So you're only highlighting and enforcing the question. It's, there's a risk. There's an there's emotional a risk, risk. There's but a the rewards are business. greater. Right. So what is that? What's compelling you to share your story? I had so many people reach out to me that knew my story one-on-one from just speaking to me one-on-one that gave them hope. I, I counsel a lot of teenagers just pro bono, just helping, helping them out. I have a special place in my heart for kids at risk. I've spoken at public schools and East New York and kids all over. And um, it gives them hope. Like, wow, you're a guy, you know, with this past, like, what does that say about me? I've, there are people that want to commit suicide that after hearing my story, they thought twice after having a couple conversations with me. So I want to live a meaningful life. And I feel like it's my mission to help others grow. I'm a truth seeker. People aren't afraid to die. People are afraid to live. And part of living is being authentic and sharing yourself, being vulnerable, healing, working on yourself. That's living. So if, if I may challenge that, all that's true, but you can be authentic without a microphone in front of you. But then you're hidden. You're not... I guess I could share it one-on-one, but I can make more of an impact. Speaking to you, doing this recording, there's a much bigger impact. So you feel like it's purpose and mission-driven? Yeah. The speaking. Recognizing the risk, understanding that there's a price to pay. However, you want to make a difference. You want more of those souls you've been able to touch through speaking in schools, through mentoring teenagers one-on-one, not look at the... uh, not look, but not get um, pulled back from that. There's no that looking back. Day. No looking back right from here. It's out there. I mean, after doing the interview in the Common Denominator podcast and releasing the ketamine documentary and this, right. there's no looking back. <laughs> I'm here to shed light, you know, on dark areas. So in my own life and also 
with the people in my circles. To, to share light, born from the darkness. It's the brightest light. So it's an honor to hear your story. An honor Thank to, you. Um, it's an honor to, to be here. First of all, I've been following your podcast you. for many months, and I love what you're doing. I feel like we're kindred spirits. We both got a microphone. And I got love for you just as a human being because of what you're doing. Because you're living with purpose and a mission to make an impact. And you were vulnerable. And I'm sure parts of your story gave me permission to be more vulnerable. So thank you for that. Appreciate that. And you're releasing some, I've heard some of your talks. Like you've shared some very vulnerable things. I'm like, wow. I left you a voice note. Remember last week or two weeks ago? I'm like, Ellie, I love you. I can't believe you shared this on recording. This is amazing. The, the one like, with um, Y.Y. Jacobson where I spoke about the, yes, the porn slip. The porn slip. And by the way, Rabbi Y.Y. is great. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. So we need more spiritual we, leaders we gotta like him. got to get him on this couch. Got to get him on this couch. And if Rabbi Y.Y., you're hearing this, we need more people like you in the community to bring more meaning, more authenticity, more purpose to Judaism. Amen. Because it's really lacking right now. Thank the, you. The Baal Shem Tov says when we see a problem, that's the sign that we can do something about it. Good point. Maybe more than could. So we're, we're doing something together. Here we are. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joey. Thank you. Awesome.